have been working our way verse by verse through the book of Mark. Do not turn to the book of Mark. We are not going to make it to the book of Mark this morning. But last week we talked about the fact that Jesus actually accomplished things on the cross. Knowing that all things were accomplished, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Last week, we talked about this word tetelestai, where he said, it is finished. So really, what is finished? And what is accomplished? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, this is a lesson that I have taught several times through the years. I've taught it at conferences through the years. But it seems completely appropriate to teach this morning the eight things that the Bible says Jesus actually did accomplish in the atoning work. Because if you look at this list of the eight things that Jesus actually did, then you're going to come out of here this morning believing the very thing I closed with last week. Last week I said, if he actually did what he says he did, then I'm saved. You're saved. We're actually thoroughly saved by the finished work of Christ. And it's easy to say that. It's easy to say, well, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But really what? What do you owe? It's a whole lot more than just him suffering and taking on the wrath of God, which he did accomplish in the atoning work. But there are results of that atoning work. And those results ought to make you feel very, very secure. So it's worth taking the time to go back and look at what did Jesus actually accomplish. Now, this is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to tell you the eight things that Jesus actually accomplished. And then I'm going to demonstrate it to you, prove it to you from Bible verses that actually say that these are the things Jesus accomplished on the cross. So that there's no question about it. Everyone leaves here going, I know what Jesus did. I know why he was on that cross. Mark has taken the time through his entire gospel to make that beeline, to point constantly toward the cross because he wanted you to know who it was that was on that cross. And he wants you to know that as the son of God hanging on that tree, he was actually a accomplishing something starting with he was accomplishing his own death because death had no hold on him death had no claim on him because the wages of sin is death he was sinless therefore death had no claim on him that's why he could say in John 10:11 I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep now, not only is that a very exclusive statement, it's Jesus' way of saying, I'm not laying down my life for everybody. I'm not laying down my life for my enemies. Okay, granted, take that theological point and run with it. But for the moment, I want you to see that Jesus said, I lay down my life. We saw last week that he said to Pilate, you would have no control over me. You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. So he alone accomplished the things that we could not accomplish. He died for the purpose 
of doing these eight things so that we will one day stand before God and not fry. And the reason for that is Jesus. The reason for that is he actually accomplished stuff. Now, this is really important to get a hold of. He didn't try to do anything. This is not Star Wars. This is not the philosophy of Yoda. There is no try. That's not what he was talking about. That was my Yoda impression, as bad as it was. It was bad, I know. There's no try here. Jesus actually accomplished what he came here to do. And if it is genuinely true that he fully accomplished everything he came to do, and if he came to atone for his people, and if he came to save his people, then those people are actually saved. Now, I've used this word atone several times here. This word is something that's become fairly common in church vernacular and church language. We're used to using the word atone, but the word atone is a brand new word to the English language, and so therefore some people don't know what it actually means. Let's break the word down. The word in Old English stems from two little words. When two people were at odds with each other, when two people were fighting with each other, when the two were reconciled to each other, the old English phrase was, they were set at one. And so they are at one with each other. William Tyndale, in his 1534 New Testament, decided when he saw the Greek word, katalagai, which means reconciliation, when he saw that, he decided to utilize that English word. As he was writing his English translation, he wanted to put forward the idea that God and man were now at one with each other because of the reconciling work of Christ. So he said that Jesus accomplished at one meant. At one meant. Over the years, we have mispronounced it as atonement. And then we talk about things that atone or don't atone. And then you say to someone, what does the word atone mean? And they'll tell you, well, reconcile or pay or propitiate or because they don't really know the root of it. And this is important. The root of this concept is God and man are no longer separated from each other at odds with each other. There is no more war between God and us. Our sin hasn't kept us from our holy righteous maker. We are set at one with God. Oh, that's a good way to start. Amen. We are set at one with God. The same way that Christ prayed to his father and said, the same way you and I are one, that's how I want these that I've chosen to be one with you. And then he went about to accomplish that. Then he went about to actually at one us so that we could stand before God and be fully reconciled, fully justified, fully complete, so that there's nothing left over for us to try to accomplish. So that's my introduction to what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the eight things that the Bible clearly and definitely says that Jesus actually accomplished. And as I say, each of these eight things, Erica is going to write them on the board up here. 
so that when we get done, we're going to have an actual list up here that when we review, we're going to come to the conclusion, man, we are a bunch of saved people. Because if all this is done for us, we're good. We're good to go. There's nothing we got to add. There's nothing you got to do. We are actually saved. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't do it. We didn't accomplish it. Christ did it all. Let's start with number one. Erica, it's on you. Number one, write the word sacrifice up there. Because the Bible says that Jesus was the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Okay, we're going to see how well this whole homeschool thing is working out. Okay, it worked out fine. He became the ultimate final substitutionary sacrifice ever since back in Isaiah, when Isaiah wrote about the fact that he was going to take on our sins that our sins were placed on him and that he died in our place ever since God told Israel that they were to put their hands on a goat to transfer their guilt to that goat and then sacrifice one goat and let the other goat escape. God was talking about substitutionary sacrifice. Somebody had to die. The wages of sin is death. When someone sins, someone dies. Every time. And you're either going to pay your own death debt, or someone's going to pay it for you. And if God would allow an animal to die for you, that is an example of substitutionary sacrifice. But then you get into the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls was never going to be sufficient to actually take away sin. Because the argument of the writer of Hebrews was, if it ever actually accomplished the taking away of sin, then you wouldn't have to do it anymore. Because it took sin away. But they still had to do it year by year by year. So he concluded that that yearly sacrifice was a reminder of our sinfulness. So that we would be constantly reminded that sin is prevalent in the camp and that animals have to die in a substitutionary way. And then Christ comes to the planet and he is the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9.24 says... This is 24 to 26. It says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places that are made with hands, which are figures of the true, but he is entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. I love those two little words there to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often. As the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then he must have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, if you take every word of that genuinely and sincerely, then you understand that your sin problem is put away by the single sacrifice of Christ. You don't have a sin debt. What you have is a perfect 
sacrifice by the perfect Son of God who perfectly and completely sacrificed himself so that you would not have to pay your sin debt because your sin debt would be separation from God forever. But you don't have to pay that because he did. In fact, all those animal sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, he said, every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one sacrifice of sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, we may not be familiar with what the high priest used to do inside that tabernacle and inside the temple, but of all the pieces of furniture that exist inside the tabernacle, the laver of cleansing and the altar of showbread and the Ark of the Covenant and all the different furniture that's in there, there's no chairs. <laughs> there's no couch. There's no place to sit down when you get tired. Because the work never stopped. The work goes on and on and on and on, which is why it's so important that a Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, writing to Hebrews, would say, after the one sacrifice of Christ, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why was he able to sit down? Because it's finished. He is the one single sacrifice for sin. Number two, you ready to write? Write the word propitiation. <laughs> IT. Look, she wrote propitiation. Yay. This is actually a concept that Paul, to some degree, borrowed from the heathen religion and the heathen culture. The idea was that if the gods were angry, if the gods were wrathful, that you could sacrifice to them a sufficient sacrifice to appease their anger. For instance, you could put your children in the fiery hands of Molech, and the screaming of the children would propitiate the wrath of that god. Well, Paul kind of picks up that same idea and he uses this word in the Greek, this hilasterios, which is actually a word that means, in some translations, it's translated as mercy seat. So Christ becomes the mercy seat, which was the covering on top of the ark where the blood was spilled. And in that way, his blood propitiates the wrath of God in our place so that the wrath of God, which needs an outlet... Because God is perfectly right and holy. Therefore, he has to judge sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just pretend it's okay. He has to judge sin. And so he's either going to judge it in you, or he's going to judge it in the one who satisfies the wrath of God. So Christ becomes our propitiation. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Slightly different word, halasmos there, which means to be the expiator of our sins, to be the full satisfaction for our sins so that the wrath of God doesn't come against us, which is why Paul can say we are not appointed to wrath. The reason is because our Savior has fully propitiated the wrath of God. Now, here's our situation. Actually, Micah read it for us this morning out of Romans 12. Our situation is that we are servants. We are bond slaves to sin. If you read John 8.34, it declares that we are bond slaves to sin. And Paul, as I keep saying, said that the wages of sin is death. So meanwhile, there's God's holy justice, which demands a sinner's penalty and has to be satisfied. And our sins have to be remitted. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, according to Hebrews 9.22. So sinners then are bond slaves on the market of sin. And only a blood sacrifice of one whose blood is worth enough can set the sinners free. So therefore, what we need is redemption. Write it up there. Christ redeemed us. That's the Greek word exegorazo for those Greek students in the room. And basically what exegorazo means is to buy out. So you could buy a slave off the slave market of sin, and that one then belonged to you. That's what Christ did. Christ came in order to buy us, in order to redeem us from our situation of being slaves to sin. And we all get this concept. We get the idea of redemption. We understand what redemption is. Uh, How many of you especially some of the folks my age and around there. How many of you remember collecting like green stamps? Yep. S&H green stamps. Yeah. And then you would fill up books full of S&H green stamps. And then when you had enough books that you could go get a lamp or a toaster or something, where did you go with your books of stamps? The Redemption Center. Because we understand that concept. If you have sufficient price in your hand, you can go where the thing is that you want and you can redeem that thing and take it home with you. Same idea. Christ had sufficient price in his hand. He had the price of his blood. The sufficient sufficient propitiatory payment. That wasn't as easy to say as you might have thought. He was able to take that price to the place where we were and buy us off the slave market of sin and take us home with him because now we belong to him because he accomplished our redemption. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified, I really like the next word, freely, oh, that's good news, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.12, neither the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. 
Okay, if he has bought you eternally, if you belong to him eternally, can he ever lose you? No. If you redeem a toaster at the SNH Stamp Redemption Center, and you take that toaster home, and later it acts up and doesn't work, it still belongs to you. It's still your problem. You still go get it fixed, or you do whatever you got to do with it, because it's yours. You've paid the price for it. It belongs to you. If Christ has paid the price for you, and it is an eternal price he paid, then he has accomplished eternal redemption for you, and nobody else can buy you. Satan can't come get you. Your friends and relatives can't come get you. You eternally belong to Christ. Now, every once in a while, we forget that, and we act like we don't. But the simple reality is we belong to Christ, like it or not. And I like it. Amen. <laughs> okay, so now in that same manner, since Christ had to pay a price in order to redeem us, what was the price that he paid? Well, that's the next thing you're going to write up here. Number four, he actually was the ransom that paid the price for guilty sinners. Ransom. This is an easy one. Ransom. He is the actual ransom price. He paid himself for us. He redeemed us by giving the price of himself. He laid down his own life. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus talking, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister to others, and this is how he did it, to give his life a ransom for many. So when he gave his life, when he hung on the tree, he was giving himself as the ransom payment, sufficient payment to redeem us, to keep the wrath of God away from us. And ultimately, he became the perfect sacrifice in the giving of himself. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, that mediator is doing the at one bringing us to oneness with God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Okay, so, so far we have these four up on the board. Does anybody have a problem with any of these four? Can we agree collectively that the Bible says Jesus accomplished these four? Yes. Okay, we're doing really good then because it really gets good from here. This is the establishing stuff he did to get us to number eight because number eight's going to get you hooping and hollering. Number eight, you're going to be running in circles. You're going to be throwing your hands in the air. By the time we get to number eight, you're going to go downright Pentecostal. By the time you're going to sit there and stare at me, I know what you're going to do. <laughs> but it'd be worth it. If you jumped up and screamed hallelujah, we're getting there. Reconciliation. Can you write that? Number five. Number five. Christ was on the cross making reconciliation between 
God and man. He was bringing them at one with each other. He was bringing together two sides that had previously been at odds with each other, not because God needed to be reconciled to us, but because we desperately need to be reconciled to him. Here's what Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Do you understand what that means? It means he took on flesh and blood so that he could become like us because that behooved him. That was beneficial to him. That was a good thing that he did in choosing to take on flesh and blood for the purpose of being able to turn himself over as a sacrifice. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He reconciled God and us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Do you hear that? God, who is the master of all things, did the reconciling work that we could not do, and he reconciled us to himself through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. It was all God doing it. It's all God's glory. It's all God's purpose. He is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And therefore, he by himself reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Christianity is. It's the ministry of reconciliation, telling people God doesn't have to judge you. If you believe, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, you can be reconciled to God. That is the ministry of what Christianity is. But then Paul goes on. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us that word of reconciliation. We human beings who open our Bible and get to tell other people about Jesus Christ, we are actively involved in the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconciling sinful men to God. That God would allow human beings to participate in the ministry of reconciliation, that's absolutely astounding. But what we do in that ministry of reconciliation is we point people to Christ because he's the reconciler. He's the one who reconciled us to God. Romans 5.10 says, for if, this will give you our natural state, our natural anthropology is that we were not only sinful, but we were actually enemies of God. But if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, then much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you hear that? I mean, think about it. Paul just said, you were an enemy of God. You were a sinner. It's not because you were one of the good ones. 
and you, being an enemy, were nevertheless reconciled to God by God through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ while you were an enemy. And now think about it. If he would reconcile you while you were an enemy, how much more can you expect to be saved by that reconciling work that he did? You feeling saved yet? Because yes, yes. we're heading for number eight. We're going to get there. Okay, number six. Justified. Write that one up there. His death justified guilty sinners. Now, that's a, that's a legal term. That's a, a term of jurisprudence. Basically, what it means is to be declared righteous. Has anybody in here ever gotten, a, let's say, a speeding ticket or a running a stop sign ticket? Or No, none of you. You're all really good drivers. Yeah, I believe you. Yeah. Okay, so when you had to go in front of the judge, it doesn't matter at that moment how guilty you are or are not. Once the judge says, I dismiss your ticket, you're innocent. You're free to go. It doesn't matter if you did it. You did the crime. You went through the stop sign, but you were able to give the judge a reason why you did it. Well, I was rushing to the hospital, and so he dismisses the ticket. And at that very moment, you are declared to be righteous even though you did it. Same idea. Even though you're a guilty sinner... Even though every crime that Satan ever accuses you of, he's probably got you dead to rights. You probably actually did the thing he's accusing you of. You're actually an enemy of God, and yet, despite that being your history and your estate, nevertheless, God declared you righteous because of the finished reconciling, ransoming, redeeming propitiating sacrifice of Christ. For that reason, he gets to say that despite the fact that you're you, you're innocent. And not just innocent, the word, and I'm not particularly great at Greek diphthongs, but dikaio is the word. Dikaio has at its root the word dike. The Greeks even had a goddess that they named dike. She was the goddess of justice. So, DK means righteousness, justice, goodness, not just innocent of the crime, but positively righteous, positively good. That's what it is to be justified, to be declared not only not guilty, but be declared positively good. You're going to be declared by God. Who would know? Who has all the authority? who's in control of everything, the maker of heaven and earth is going to declare you personally to be absolutely righteous despite you. And I know you. And I know you're not righteous. And God is going to say you are because of what Jesus did. The Bible teaches, quickly while we're here, teaches three imputations. Since sometimes people argue about this idea of imputed righteousness, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. But there are three imputations in the Bible. The first of them is that Adam's sinfulness, Adam's rebellion, 
is then imputed to all mankind. So we don't even get a fighting shot at it. We're born sinful because Adam's sinfulness and depravity is imputed to all of mankind. And human beings don't like that. Human beings want to argue with that one. That's not fair. I didn't even get a fair shot at it. And that's why there are some theologies out there that try to claim that every individual gets a fair shot. They're born innocent, and then you're not considered a sinner until you actually sin. That's Pelagianism. That's also wrong. It's also unbiblical. The Bible says everybody in Adam is a born sinner. Okay, the second imputation is all our sin is imputed to Christ. So that when he gave himself up as the propitiatory sacrifice, he had our sinfulness and our guilt on him so that the third imputation could happen, which is Christ's own righteousness is imputed to us so that we are declared innocent and righteous because of the justification that Christ proffered for us. Are you feeling it yet? Because it just gets gooderer and gooderer. <laughs> Say it with me. It's gooderer, gooderer. and gooderer. gooderer. You know what that sounded like up here? That was just a bunch of rah, 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 rah. <laughs> Okay, so Isaiah 53, 11. He, God, shall see the travail of Christ's soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So the very fact that he bore our iniquities leaves us in a state where we are positively righteous. Acts 13, 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through Christ, is preached unto you forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses and the killing of animals and the keeping of the law could not justify you. It couldn't ever give you perfect positive righteousness because you had to keep going back and killing another animal and killing another animal and killing another animal. People have asked me before, when I read the Old Testament, there's just so much blood. Why is there so much blood in the Old Testament? Why this constant stream of blood going out from the tabernacle? Why is there so much blood? I'll tell you why. Because there's so much sin. And sin requires death. And Christ, by his single sacrifice, justified us from all the things that we could not be justified through the law of Moses. So that single sacrifice accomplished our justification. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You getting this? In the courts of heaven, God sees you as perfectly justified, righteousified, and ready to stand in his presence because of everything Jesus did for you. Do you get that? How many of you watched the Ohio State-Michigan football game? 
Okay, <laughs> we knew that Micah's hand was going to fly into the air. So Micah, you were pretty excited, right? Yeah, pretty excited. Yeah, dancing around the room, pretty excited about the whole thing. Listen. Okay, pretty excited. Yes, sir. I went one year to Michigan. I was disgusted. My <laughs> <laughs> one year there was Bo Schenbeckler's first year, and I fell in love with the team. And if we were going to have any year, it was going to be this year, and it didn't happen. Well, this is GCA, not ESPN, but, but I get what you're saying, because I'm from Michigan. Yeah, you're from Michigan. Oh, yeah. Here's my point. Micah was really excited. Micah was really excited. Micah, at the end of that game, jumped up, I'm betting, and said, we won. Right? We win. We win. How much actual work did Micah put in? Zero. Micah did nothing. His entire winning attitude was based on the work of someone else. Somebody else was on the field. Somebody else was throwing and catching that ball. Somebody else was blocking and tackling. He didn't do a darn thing. He sat on his chair and he ate chips. That's right. That's right. He did nothing. It was fully accomplished through somebody else's work. We get that. We get that concept when we're talking football, and yet we own it. And yet we say, we won our team. We did it. We did nothing. Okay, that's what I'm trying to get at here. We are justified by the finished work of Christ, not because we did anything, but because he did all of it, and therefore we win based on the hard work of someone else. Hebrews 10.10 says, By the which will, by God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's done. It's a done deal. Through his finished work, we are sanctified. Hebrews 2.11, For both he that sanctifies, that's Jesus, and they who are sanctified, that's us, are all of one. That's that at one thing. For which cause he, Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters, family. I won't go on about this, but at Thanksgiving, did you get together with family? I did. I got together with my brothers and sisters. We all gathered from all over the country and we got together. And you know what? We're very different people. I'm sure if we wanted to, we could find things to disagree about. But in the end, that's my brother. In the end, that's my sister. And I love them because that's the only brother and sisters I get. Jesus took that relationship, that interpersonal family relationship, and said he is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters because he's the one that sanctified you. And you are the one that is sanctified, and therefore we are all one. Anybody feeling this yet? Anybody about ready to jump to their feet yet? 1 Corinthians 6.11 1 Corinthians 6.11, I was just going to read 1 Corinthians 6.11, but I'm actually going to read a little bit more of it because this is just a fascinating thing that Paul writes. Because through that justifying work, 
there also becomes a change, a difference in us. And so Paul would write, starting in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll start at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, the ones who don't have the DK, the ones who don't have the positive righteousness, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Why wouldn't you know that? Of course you know that. The unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived. Now, Paul writes that don't be deceived because he's about to say something important. Neither fornicators, that's any kind of sexuality outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's sex within marriage with someone who's not your husband or wife, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Okay, that's, that's the bad ones. And he lists the bad ones and then talks about how they've been justified and redeemed and says, you used to be like that. But notice that he also says, you used to be like that. You were like that. So I would have to ask the question, if you're still like that, and you profess Christ as your Savior, why are you still like that? Why are you still gossiping? Why are you still backbiting? Why are you still getting drunk regularly or reviling or swindling? Why, why? when you know that the list here says, that's what you used to be. But but you are sanctified. So now knowing that you've been sanctified by Christ, you're not supposed to be that way anymore. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So not only did Christ accomplish all of this, but he actually causes an internal change in us by his spirit. And that's all the work of this justifying that Christ is doing in us. All right, you ready for number seven? Sanctified. He sanctified us. We just read it. Such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of God being inside you is the governor on your behavior. And that spirit within you separates you from the rest of humankind. You are now the redeemed, the blood-bought. You are the redeemed of Christ. You've been justified, so you've been set apart for God's exclusive use. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, which I mentioned earlier, which I talked about, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was a lot of furniture and that furniture, before it went into the tabernacle, had to be sprinkled with blood. And then once it was sprinkled with blood, it was referred to as a holy object. And it couldn't be used for any common use because it was now holy. 
That's part of Belshazzar's problem in the book of Daniel when he decided to throw a feast and use the objects that came out of the temple. Those objects had been sanctified to God. And because they were sanctified to God, they can't be used for any common use. You are referred to as sanctified by the finished work of Christ. He has set you apart, given you the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, you are sanctified, set apart from the rest of the world. You're not supposed to be like the rest of the world or act like the rest of the world, think like the rest of the world because you've been blood-bought and spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled and being sanctified or set apart you can then be number eight. You ready? Number eight. Be careful because Marilyn might jump up on her chair. <laughs> no, it's just this good. And if you sit there and stare at me after I tell you number eight, I'm going to know exactly what your spiritual state is. <laughs> Are you ready? Perfected. Forever. <laughs> Perfected forever. Completed forever. Starting now. Starting at Calvary. Starting. At before the foundation of the world when he wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life. Perfected, completed, forever. What do you got to add to perfect forever? Nothing. Nothing. You can't add anything to that. Hebrews 10, 14. For by his one offering, that means when he was on the cross. When he hung on the cross, by his one offering, he has perfected forever those that he sanctified. So he sanctified you, and by sanctifying you, he has perfected you forever. Now let's look at this list for just a moment, shall we? Do it. Pardon my very Vanna White motions here. <laughs> Number one, he's the final propitiatory sacrifice. It's done. He's the final sacrifice for sin. Number two, he is the propitiation that separates you from the wrath of God so that you're not appointed to wrath. He redeemed you, which means that he bought you off the slave market of sin so that you belong to him. And the price that he paid for you was himself. He was the ransom price that was paid. As a consequence, you are at one with God. You are reconciled with God. You're no longer enemies of God. You are fully at one reconciled with God and therefore you are justified not just innocent but positively righteous in God by his declaration of your righteousness he has separated you he has sanctified you he has put his Holy Spirit inside you separating you from the rest of the world and expecting you to act like it and then number eight you are in fact perfect for Ever. And that word perfect means complete. It means nothing needs to be added to it forever. From the time that he hung on the cross until eternity, he never has to go to the cross again because he left something undone. You're going to be saved because he did it all. Now when we say Jesus paid it all, now we have some idea of what he actually paid. He actually paid Everything so that we are 
perfected forever. Anybody in here feeling perfected forever? I mean, that's the, the Romans 8.28 stuff, Romans 8.29. Those whom he foreknew, those are the ones that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Furthermore, those that he predestined, those he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And it's that glorified one that really makes us struggle. Like, I'm glorified already? Yes, you're, you're more than glorified already. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and you're perfected forever. You can't add anything. You don't want to add anything. You don't want to get in the way of that. You want Christ to be fully and completely and utterly Lord and accomplish all the things that only he can accomplish. And you can't do anything about it. And you don't want to. Amen. Now, when you look at that list, let me just say parenthetically, if this is what he accomplished on the cross, and I think we've proved now biblically that it is, does anybody have any problem with my biblical proofs? Okay. If I've biblically proven that he did these eight things, could he have done that for everybody who ever lived? Because then you have to explain how perfected forever people go to hell. Well, if you're perfected forever, you can't go to hell. If you're justified, if you're blood-bought, if you're spirit-filled, if you've been redeemed and ransomed, if you, if you have all that going for you, how in the world do you have to pay your own sin debt? If, if going to hell, if being cast out of God's presence, if being in outer darkness, whatever the punishment is, if that punishment is a result of your sin... How can you be punished for your sin if you have no sin debt? So that is one of the reasons that we believe in particular atonement. Because if you can find even one person that Jesus didn't do all that for, then you have to say he didn't do it for everybody. Now, in my book, By Grace Alone, in the chapter on limited atonement, I go through these eight things. And make the basic argument that I just made to you. For those of you who are taking notes, you could have just picked up the book. Or you could have downloaded it for free off our website. Or you could have paid three bucks on Amazon and gotten the Kindle version. But here it is. The basic argument is Jesus did these eight things. He didn't do it for everybody. Which is why Acts 20.28 20, can say, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He died for the sheep. Where did I start? Jesus said, I lay my life down for the sheep. Paul ends up saying he bought the church by his own blood. He bought us. Now, he was under no obligation to buy you. There was nothing you could possibly do to merit that. There's nothing you could do to earn that or make him say, oh, yeah, I got to have Paul. I mean, he's, look at him. He's, he's killing it over here. Him and Josiah, whoo, those are some ping pong playing guys. He, he, he didn't look at them and say, those are the good ones. I just got to have them. He looked on them and they were corrupt, sinful enemies in thought, word, and deed. And nevertheless, by grace, 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 he sent his son to accomplish all this for them because they couldn't do it. 
And that man, that, that man, man, that, that's the gospel right there. Yes, it is. That's the good news. And that is really, really good news. Now, next week, when we read about Jesus hanging on the cross, that's what he was up there doing. Okay? By the way, one more thought. If he thought he did all that when he hung on the cross, but he didn't get up again, Paul argues that our faith is vain. He died and he stayed dead, and you're still in your sins. But the fact that he resurrected is proof that he accomplished all of that and that God received the sacrifice of himself and has now given you everything that's up here on the board. He's done all that for you fully and completely, not out of obligation, but out of an agreement that he made with his father that he would come to the earth and accomplish that. And I, for one, say, thank God. We won through the work of another. We didn't do it, but we win. It's exactly right. Okay, is there anybody in this room who, after hearing all that, is still grumpy? Because you get to be first out the door. Because at this moment, we're a bunch of happy people. All right. Are there any questions about what you've heard this morning? Yes, sir. I would say yes. I would say that's what the whole concept of Abraham's bosom is. Yep. Any other questions? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.